Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown. Lance, how are you today? I am doing excellent today. It's great to be here nestled, nestled in our uh, cozy confines here in Wormtown. How are you doing today, Tim? I'm doing great with this wrestler announcer voice. I was just going to say, what's going on with that? You sound like Vince McMahon. Well, I'm just fired up about the American Crime Festival, Lance, but... Before we get into that, I just want to uh, let you know what is coming up on this episode. We spoke with Stephen Pacheco of the podcast Trace Evidence, a true crime podcast. Really well done, well researched. He's been doing it for a while now. And we've met him at some of the conferences, CrimeCon, the uh, True Crime Podcast Festival, and he's a great guy. And so we finally get to talk to him on the air. And we spoke mostly about uh, two disappearance cases that he's covered recently, one by the name of Branson Perry, another by the name of Adam Hecht. Yeah, and if you want to find out more about uh, Trace Evidence and about Stephen, his website is trace-evidence.com, and you can also contribute to his patreon and that's patreon.com slash trace evidence and he's a super cool guy i love the fact that he was inspired by unsolved mysteries and all of those old shows that we grew up together you know not literally together but we all grew up watching and i love the fact that he was so uh influenced by one character in an unsolved mysteries episode that terrified him so much that he felt like he needed to do the case about adam hatch sort of work out those skeletons uh, in his own personal uh, closet. Exactly, in, in, in a very harmless way, but productive. Exactly, in a productive way. So thanks to Stephen. We really appreciate having, having him on. And we're also going to hang out with him at the American Crime Festival, November 8th, 9th, and 10th, 2019 in Wildwood, New Jersey, Lance. The American Crime Festival adding new presentations and panels and people every day. You are accurate. Right now we have Aphrodite Jones versus Larry Pollard. They're going to be debating the owl theory. And for those of you who don't know, the owl theory is from the Michael Peterson case. Michael Peterson was arrested for murdering his wife. And one of the theories that Larry Pollard actually created was that she was attacked by an owl. Aphrodite Jones is vehemently against that. And they are going to go mano y mano or or beak e beak. Yeah, and we have our buddy Bill Thomas of the Colonial Parkway murders. He just got added to the list. And we have the original citizen detective, Tim. We have Todd Matthews. We had him on Crawl Space back in the early days. He remained a friend of the show, and he was super excited when we asked him to take part in this. So it was basically like, Todd, whatever you want to talk about, you want to talk about Tent Girl, you want to talk about NamUs, you want to talk about any of the foundations that you're a part of, 
feel free. It's it's going to be your stage. So he's going to be up there. He's going to talk about his experiences, and then we're going to have a nice, uh, probably you know, twenty minute, half hour Q and A with the audience and Todd Matthews. So that's going to be really, really fun. And what about John Lorden? He's joining, and he's going to do a, a presentation on Elisa Lamb. Elisa Lamb being the case that everyone is captivated by. It was huge on YouTube. It was the first case that John Lorden really sunk his teeth into, and he really humanized uh, the victim here, Elisa Lamb. And that's what not a lot of other people did. So he's going to be presenting on that and hopefully just bring back that human element to that case. And there's also a panel that is developing, Lance, that is called How to Create and Maintain a Popular Crime Podcast. And so far, the people who are joining in that panel is Mike Morford of the Criminology Podcast. We have Marissa Jones of The Vanished. We have Captain of True Crime Garage, Emily Nestor of Mile Marker 181, another Crawl Space alum, and Josh Hallmark of True Crime Bullshit. So that is going to be a great panel, and we may expand that a little further, but we're not really quite sure. There's a lot of things taking shape right now behind the scenes, and so check AmericanCrimeFest.com because the schedule will be updated as soon as we can. Yep, and we just keep working on getting these new guests in the background, like you said. So, again, keep checking that. AmericanCrimeFest.com will have updated guests, updated presenters, new podcasters, and you can use a discount code CRIME, that's all caps, CRIME, for $50 off each of your tickets Wildwood, New Jersey, November 8th, 9th, and 10th. And that 8th date is a VIP meet and greet. And we're going to have some of our featured presenters there where you can mingle with them, buy them some shots, and you can also buy Tim and I some shots as well. We will accept. (laughs) So thank you very much for listening to Crawl Space here today. And we hope to see you at the American Crime Festival. Make sure to follow Stephen Pacheco and his podcast, Trace Evidence. Thank you very much. Welcome to Crawl Space, Stephen Pacheco of Trace Evidence. How are you today? I'm doing good. How are you? Doing well. Thank you so much for joining us. I feel like this has been a long time coming. I've been familiar with your work for a long time, and uh, we met at at CrimeCon and uh, I think maybe one or two of the other uh, festivals. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's been a long time coming. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm glad to be here and uh, definitely remember at least this past crime con having a couple conversations with you. They were great conversations and you're literally a wealth of knowledge when it comes to all of these topics that you cover and you're super busy. So uh, I know that Tim just thanked you for coming on, but seriously, thank you for taking uh, time out of your day to do this with us. We, we really appreciate it, but seriously, thank you. But you know, seriously, I'm, I'm always happy. <laughs> to do. <it. laughs> okay, great. Well, uh, things have been really busy for you lately. You've uh, you've even uh, been in the news with um, some sort of not like non normal work uh, coverage for you. What's uh, what's that been like? Uh, it's been interesting. It's certainly not the kind of stuff that I expected to be in the news for. Um, when I imagined seeing my name in the New York Times, it wasn't about uh, plagiarism. Yeah. Well, at least you're on the right side of that story. Yeah. Thank God. Yeah, so what happened there, if you want to um, take us through a a little bit? Um, In a nutshell, uh, I noticed some plagiarism going on with uh, 
uh, crime junkie and didn't really say anything about it. I detected it around January of this year, but wasn't really sure what I should say about it with them being as big of a show as they are. I didn't really want to get out there in front of that train and try to do anything about it. And through conversations with other podcasters, I started to pick up on the fact that other people were noticing this and other podcasters were starting to hear their work appearing on that show. So all of us were discussing it and trying to figure out what the best action was to take when Kathy Fry, the journalist, made her public posting about them using her article on the Casey Woody story. And that sort of gave all of us the ability to say, well, if she's going to go out there on her own and stand against them, I guess we can come out and say the stuff that we've been noticing. Um, so really, it's all thanks to Kathy Fry for coming forward and making the plagiarism accusation that she made. What's the difference? Because we often source material, uh, articles, and other people's um other people's uh, results, you know? So what what's the difference? How do you listen to something and immediately know that something's off and you've been uh, plagiarized to the point where you think that there is some sort of action you can take and not just referenced? At least in my instance, um, I write in a really specific way. The way that I write my scripts, the way that I speak on the show isn't necessarily the way people speak in normal conversation. And that's something that's always been a, a piece of my writing. I always write in sort of this particular structure. So, you know, when you're listening to an episode that you've done and someone else is doing it, you're going to hear the same facts. And sometimes you're going to hear things that are presented similarly. But there's a big difference between that and then listening and being like, oh, this follows the same chronology that my episode followed. And you've got specific sections here that are word for word. And when someone word for words something that I wrote and their podcast is typically based around it being more like a chit chat style show, it's very easy to notice the clunky monologue that they're starting to say, mixing in with their normal conversation. Right. I can see where that would stand out a bit to you. Yeah. So you're listening to that and you say to yourself, wow, those are my words. Like, what's that feel like? It's really strange. Um, I think anyone who's ever created anything or wrote anything, at some point, someone's either tried to use it for their own purposes or you've had someone sort of take something of yours. So it's not a new experience. I think what was most mind-blowing about it was I would expect this from a podcast that has like 10 listeners and they're new and no one's paying attention. Yeah. It was really weird to hear it from a show that was that big. And the weirdest thing about it was... I'm a smaller show than theirs, but if I listen to another podcast and I gain a piece of information from their podcast, I'm going to tell you in that episode, oh, I listened to this podcast and they did really great coverage on this. So it was just one of those things where it was like, well, why is it so difficult for you to say, oh, I listened to Trace Evidence and he said this, especially when I had spoken to them before I had done a promo swap with them before they had told me that they liked the show. So it was just one of those weird things where it was like, why is it so difficult for you to just say where you got this information from? Yeah, that's very interesting. I wonder maybe they have writers and, and that communication was never passed, but it, it should be. I know that they have writers because I know people that they've approached to be writers. And it wouldn't be surprising to me if plagiarism in connection to them has to do with the selection of writers and a lack of reviewing their work because... I mean, I'm not going to get into specific numbers on it, but I know what they're offering people for ghostwritten scripts, and it's not the standard of what you would expect to be offered for a ghostwritten script. So I don't think you're going to get the same work level out of those people. 
Oh, well, that is an interesting um, element of the whole thing. So they're offering uh, to purchase ghostwritten scripts that they use on their show. Correct. Yeah. Do they ever credit uh, them as being ghostwritten? Like, not obviously not uh, crediting the, the author, but do they ever say this was provided ghostwritten for us? No, they don't mention that at all. Very interesting. Yeah, it is an interesting topic. Yeah, and we'll definitely talk more about it at the uh, American Crime Festival, where we're uh, we're gonna see you this this year, this November eighth, ninth, and tenth in Wildwood, New Jersey. We're uh, we we gotta get you on a panel. Have we uh, we discussed this yet? I I haven't had a discussion about it. No, but I'm I'm totally willing to do anything. Okay, we we'll go. figure something out. Perfect. I just want to get back to real quickly. Uh, you mentioned Kathy Fry. Kathy Fry was the first person to bring this uh, plagiarism to light. And uh, the case that they covered, correct me if I'm wrong, the case that they covered was the the uh, 2003 article that she wrote um, about a Greenbrier, Arkansas teenager that was that was murdered in 2002 in the um, the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, so if anybody wants the actual story, you can you can Google the Arkansas Demo- Democrat Gazette, Kathy Fry's uh, 2003 article. Yeah, you'll get uh, her article that she wrote. And actually, just by Googling the Democrat Gazette, you'll get some of the updated information about the um, legal action that they filed against Crime Junkie. So That's crazy. I wonder if we should do a podcast ethics like something like that some kind of panel we've been talking about something like that since um you know you're coming and you've been such a big part of this story i wonder if we should uh try to focus on something like that maybe get a ethics professor or something like that that would certainly be interesting you know that's been one of the really interesting sides to the whole plagiarism angle which to me and most of the people involved it seems like a pretty black and white situation but across the board at least in the true crime community You've seen a lot of different opinions on it, and there's been those people who have come out and said, well, I don't see what the problem is. Everybody does this. And then you've had the other people saying, no, everybody doesn't do this. They cite their sources. So it's been really interesting, at least to me, to see where everybody stands on the issue. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely it's I mean, I remember when I first heard about plagiarism as a kid, I was really confused about the issue at all. You know, like it's it's definitely it's definitely a different kind of uh, issue because of of podcasting. This particular uh, exact problem hasn't ever really reared its head before, at least in this kind of public way. No, you're you're right, because so much of the information that people talk about is out there anyway, whether it's from police records, uh, old articles or say even Wikipedia, you're you're always sourcing something, and I think what we just don't hear a lot of the times is someone simply saying, uh, you know, from this article I'm reading this. You know, that's that's really all you have to do. But yeah, we've never seen anything where it's been just a script, like a yeah. legit plagiarized script. <laughs> yeah, and it's nice to link to the the episodes or the uh, the yeah. articles. And I know if, yeah. if we we talk directly about um an article, like we've done a few times, but we we usually do interviews, so we kind of steer clear of issues like this uh naturally. But um the few times we have like focused on singular episode um articles, we will uh talk about that in the episode and then link to it. But uh, I do see how uh, you in your show notes you have like ten links, so you are you're very well researched in your show, trace evidence, and you uh, see no shame in posting uh, the links uh, where you got your information. Yeah, I mean my show notes have the link 
typically to every online source that I found uh, for a particular episode. And then even on the website, I have an episodes list. And if when you go to that, there's like the little um, summary of what the episode's about, a bunch of images that are associated with the case. And then at the bottom of that, I have all the links as well. Do you have a degree in journalism or anything of the sort? No, I never actually took journalism. Uh, I guess that's not true. I took journalism in high school because I've always been a writer and journalism was something I thought I might want to pursue, but I didn't particularly enjoy my high school experience with it. So when I went on to college, I took every kind of writing there was except for journalism. Yeah. Well, I think that would be an interesting panel if you as a writer and a podcaster, a true crime podcaster, we're up there with, like Tim said, either an ethics professor or maybe a journalist who can uh, talk about journalistic ethics. Yeah, it would certainly be interesting. Uh, but yeah. the plagiarism thing lately, we're also seeing sort of this this weird thing that's happening where it's clearly this disagreement between old media and new media. Mm. And you're seeing, you know, written journalists that are in newspapers and magazines sort of speaking against podcasters and a lot of times in a negative way essentially blanketing all of us by saying, well, they, that none of them really know the ethics of plagiarism and none of them really understand journalism, so how can you expect them to understand how to do this? And I think that's true for some people, but I know podcasters who have journalism degrees and I know podcasters who have very good ethics on this topic. So it's this weird divide that you're seeing where I think sort of old media is going, well, here's an opportunity to take a shot at them. Yeah, I think there's there's definitely some truth to that. Um, we, we've had uh, that experience as well. Uh, we've had we've we have no degrees. I think we we try to do the best we can with um, ethics and uh, with our you know quote unquote journalism in the shows that we do. But it's really just relying on instinct. Yeah, in a lot of ways, relying on your gut. Yeah, it's also you know if you're gonna do an episode on something and you're reading from something else, if you're consciously making the choice of, well, we just won't mention this thing we're reading from, all you really have to do is imagine someone else reading something you wrote, and it's like, would you want them to credit you? Yes, then that's what you should be doing. It's not like a super complicated issue. No. No, it's very it's very straightforward. That gets so so damaged for for some reason. So tell us about your show and a little bit about your process. Well, Trace Evidence, I drop episodes weekly every Monday, and I do specifically all unsolved cases. So I do disappearances and murders, typically. I've actually been lately considering expanding and doing other unsolved kind of crimes to break it up a little bit because it gets so heavy doing week after week of these horrible what? stories. No, no it, it doesn't. doesn't. You talk <laughs> like you have PTSD. Stop it. <laughs> I, I might. I'm not sure. You probably do. But... Yeah, so I've been thinking about doing like, you know, what about like unsolved robberies or art theft or something and mixing them in once in a while. They wouldn't become the standard of the show. I just thought it would be interesting to look at something where I didn't have to be depressed for an entire week talking about it. <laughs> well, be careful with the uh, the art crime one. We, yeah, don't, we, thought, don't we, we thought that would be lighter. And then uh, <laughs> someone informed us that, uh, that you know, you know, with Maura Murray, like you don't even know that she was... Um, you know, met with foul play or something like there could be no criminal at large in that case. But with this art crime case, you know that actual mobsters were involved at one point. So by nature, it's more dangerous sometimes. And the, yeah. uh, the mobsters will sometimes remind you that more than just paintings go missing sometimes. Mm -hmm. Well, that's true. Um, 
one of the first cases I was looking at doing just because it's one that's always interested me. And even though we pretty much know who did it, but it was going to be the Lufthansa Airlines heist that obviously oh, you saw, you know, Goodfellas and, you know, the mob was definitely tied into that. I think it's a little safe now because I'm pretty sure everybody who was involved is dead now. Yeah, yeah, that's def- <laughs> that's definitely okay. A little, uh, little safer, cleaner in that one. Well, see, Stephen, don't even worry. Tim just gave you the stamp of approval. Yeah, go dive for into it. that one. Don't worry about the. Don't worry about the mob. All right. Don't worry about the crazy emails you may get at four a.m. Uh, threat, threatening all caps. I'll just send them over to you. <laughs> Perfect. Just forward them my way. Yeah. Got a cool. special <laughs> folder for them anyway. Yeah. <laughs> So let's talk a little bit about the the uh, last couple of disappearance cases you worked on for Trace Evidence. And uh, let's start with Branson Perry. Can you uh, take us through this this story a little bit, this case? All right. So Branson was from the town of uh, Skidmore, which is a well-known town because of several not great things that have happened there. Um I sort of feel bad for the residents of the town. It's very small. It's like 300 people, Mm. but they have this, these negative instances from their history murders. Um, So everybody sort of looks at their town like, Oh, that's the town where crazy stuff happens. But most for the most part, crazy things don't happen there. They've just had some bad luck. So Branson grew up in this town with his parents. They got divorced a little bit after he got out of high school. He went to live with his father, who was suffering from some medical issues, while his brother went to live with his mother about 20 minutes away. And a couple of days before his disappearance, uh, Branson went to a neighbor's house, and the story goes that he was under the influence while there and was sexually assaulted. And he told his father about this, and it was the first time where he had discussed his sexuality with his father and noted that he, you know, was gay. And his father was really upset about it, but before he could do anything, he had to go back into the hospital. So while he was in the hospital, Branson decides he wants to make everything nice for when his dad gets out. He invites a friend over to help clean the house. He invites two guys over to work on his dad's car. This is the day his father is supposed to get out of the hospital. Well, the friend who's cleaning the house claims that she sees him walking with jumper cables. And when she asks him what he's doing, he says, oh, I'm just going to put these in the shed. And he's never seen again. And none of his friends, the two people working on the car or this woman, look around for him and try to figure out what happened. They just go home. And his father doesn't get out of the hospital that day. He ends up having to stay in longer. So by the time he gets out and they really put together that Branson's missing, it's already six days later. So by the time police were even tipped off to him being missing, they were six days behind already. Oh, my gosh. And how old was he that he was 20? Is that what you said? Yeah, I believe he had just turned 20. Wow. Okay. so do they have any suspects in the case? None that they've ever named. Police have been pretty outspoken about the fact that they believe his disappearance is in some way tied to uh, drug dealers located about 20 minutes away in another town. They haven't really explained too much of that other than we know that one of the friends who was there that day who was supposed to help him clean eventually told police that they had started experimenting with marijuana and amphetamines. Um, So... Police, for whatever reason, have decided that it must be connected to the drugs. I don't know. They probably have more information than we do. 
Um, rumors started coming out he might have owed a debt to a drug dealer. So it definitely seems like his disappearance is tied into that somehow. Did he have any uh, medical condition or anything? Well, that's the really interesting thing about it. So he had tachycardia, which doesn't really go well with amphetamine use. What is uh, tachycardia? Is that a uh, like a heart disease? Yeah, it's essentially uh, your resting heart rate is faster than a normal person's resting heart rate. Oh, yeah. So and I'm sure that doesn't <laughs> bode well with <laughs> amphetamines. Yeah, it probably doesn't go hand in hand. So there's a chance, I assume, that something could have happened with him just using drugs and something went wrong. And then the reaction was, well, we've got to get rid of him. It's sort of reminiscent of what a lot of people think might have happened in the or what people used to think might have happened in the Lauren Spear case, where she also had a heart condition and there were rumors of cocaine use. Mm. Yeah, it also reminds me of Brianna Maitland a little bit because yeah. there there are some people who said that she owed a drug debt. Um, but but when you break that down, it's like why why kill this person because you you're owed a debt to them that they haven't paid. And I think with Brianna anyway, it wasn't a, a large amount if if that was true at all. And so I think that's kind of been discounted like as as a motive for uh, making her go missing if that's what happened. Right. And I kind of feel that way with Branson's case, because you're talking about a 20 year old kid who doesn't even have a job. How much drugs could you possibly have given him without being paid for them that it became worth killing him over it? Why would you give someone with no money that much stuff? Right. Yeah. I mean, 20 year old kid is pretty capable of getting a job and paying back a few hundred dollars. I can't imagine it was more than a couple grand at most. Yeah. But the, the, I, yeah. The, the only consideration I had, at least in that aspect, and again, I don't know because police have been really tight lipped about this area of it. I thought there was a possibility you're talking about a 20 year old kid. He doesn't have a job and he's got friends who are dealing drugs. There's the possibility that he could have made a deal to start dealing drugs and maybe he used his own stuff or he didn't sell it fast enough or whatever the case was. I could see him earning a large debt that way. OK, OK. Or maybe maybe he's new competition on the block. And maybe uh, some some other big drug dealer isn't. Um, I guess there are plenty of hypotheticals, you know, speculation we could um, play with and uh, and figure out that he could have been the victim of this culture. Um, it, do you think the investigation has stalled because the police just kind of chalk it up to drugs and and it's kind of like, oh, well, the public doesn't care that much kind of shrug? Not really. Um, I think the police are very invested in that case. Uh, the sheriff's office, I know, is very invested in that case. They became close with Branson's mother before she passed away, um, and they really want to find what happened to him. I think, if anything, that case is mostly hindered by the fact that they really only have the information of one particular person to go off of in terms of the day that Branson disappeared, and it most people don't seem to believe that person is 100% honest about the circumstances. Oh, Do really? Do you think that the area he was from, Skid, Skidmore, Missouri, was that a particularly tolerant area, especially of homosexuals? I know you mentioned that in the beginning, but instead of the drug route, do you think that that could have that's probably more of a of a possibility here? That was something I looked at uh, when I was working on the episode, and I'd actually written up a section of the script where I addressed that. But the more people I spoke to, the less clear it became, because no one, if you go to them and say, hey, how does your town view you know, gay people, is going to be like, oh, my town hates them. So 
to a degree, everyone I spoke to, at least who had been to the area or was from an area around there, had told me there were, you know, there was tolerance there. It was acceptable. As someone who lives in a small town, I could totally see that for some people it was probably totally acceptable, but I'm sure there were elements of that town that didn't appreciate it. So I wouldn't be surprised if that could play a factor in it. Yeah, and a lot's changed in 18 years since uh, since Branson's gone missing, you know, culturally. And I think uh, being gay or homosexual is a little bit more ex- widely accepted now as opposed to 18 years ago. I mean, that, that, that's an interesting uh, observation. I would say in, in certain areas that's correct, but I think in other areas it might actually have gotten worse. There's definitely that. I mean, so he went missing in 2001, which is the year that I graduated high school. And I grew up in New York. And I know in 2001 where I grew up, the tolerance for gay people was sort of on the rise, but it wasn't fully there yet. So if trying to compare that to this small town, I don't know. But in some places, it's become a lot more tolerant. But all you really have to do is, you know, turn on the television. You, you can see that all these years later, in some places, it's become less tolerant. Yeah, for real. I mean, I just have to go back to uh, to the area that I grew up in in New Hampshire and find that there's not a whole lot of uh, tolerance that has uh, that's <laughs> sort of grown over the past few years. Any uh, stories you care to share, Lance? Anything? Uh, this um, isn't about me. This is about uh, Stephen here. Well, I'm just curious if you're pulling off any on anything uh, specific. I mean, I, I guess it's an interesting point, though. I think that you're raising that um, rural towns might have less tolerance than urban areas, you know, like cities. I think that's probably accurate, but I don't have any stats in front of me to back that up. Yeah, I know, like, uh, I can talk to my family, and I know their feelings, and and I know that they're extremely tolerant, and I can talk to former friends or just, um, you know, like like acquaintances that uh, I grew up with, uh, and it's like the the jokes really it's like the the jokes haven't stopped it's like oh okay but you know we we're tolerant but you know they'll they'll still make these jokes about mm-hmm. certain types of people you know both the mother and father have passed away since he went missing both of them were desperate to find out what happened to him his poor mother was involved in everything she could possibly be involved in to try and find what happened to her son you know it's just a it's a terrible situation and then Not long after he went missing, there was the horrible crime that took place where a woman went to Branson's cousin's house and murdered her and cut her unborn child out of her. Yeah, that was uh, just a couple years later, right? And what what happened there? That was it's such a bizarre story. I think it was like a year and a half, two years later. And uh, his cousin was. She operated like a dog breeding thing with her husband. So she was online in a lot of dog chat rooms and she met this other woman who said that she also was pregnant and they became friends. And this woman basically implied, oh, I want to get a dog. I'll come to your house and you can show me some of the dogs. She went to the house and then strangled her and then used a kitchen knife to cut the baby out of her. Unfortunately, she the mother died. The child did live and police were able to recover it the next day. Okay, holy shit. Yeah. So that was his cousin, and the child lived, and the child's still alive today that you know of? As far as I know, yeah. His cousin was uh, Bobby Joe Stinnett. Yeah. Okay, so this is completely unrelated to the disappearance. 
As far as we know, it's just yeah. one of those bizarre things where you're talking a town of 300 people and a kid disappears and then, you know, very shortly later his cousin gets murdered in such a horrible way. It's one of the reasons people look at this town like there's something wrong with it. Right. Jesus. Uh, well, <clears throat> on that note. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't, uh, doesn't an art heist sound better now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I see your points. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's talk about the disappearance of Adam Hecht a little bit. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about that case? Adam's story is really fascinating. So Adam grew up in Beverly Hills in a well-to-do family. His father was involved in Hollywood and theater and writing and managing people. He had his hands in everything. So Adam was the, one of the younger siblings of this family where I believe the father had three children with a previous marriage. So there was three half-siblings and then three biological siblings. So, you know, Adam grew up in this fast-paced, rich world. He had nice cars. He played tennis. He was involved in sports. One of the big things with him is he was super athletic. But either way you look at it, that's going to impact your personality to some degree growing up in that kind of world. But sometime in his early 20s, he started looking at things really differently. He seemed to sort of resent the lifestyle that he had grown up in. And he started trying to give back. So he started working for homeless shelters and giving money to people on the streets. And then he started talking to people on the streets and started spending time with people on the streets. And then he started spending nights out on the streets. And then he met this one particular homeless guy when he went out to lunch with his brother and ended up inviting this guy to live with him. And this guy, from what I can gather, had some psychological issues and Adam seemed to go down that path with him, and there were talks about weird rituals that they were performing and just strange behaviors. And then one day Adam was gone, and this guy Tony, or that's what they call him as Tony, who was living with him, was still living in the apartment, but Adam was nowhere to be found, and Tony said he had no idea where he was, and the family had no idea where he was. And about a month after he disappeared, they found his car, and his wallet was there, and the keys were there, and the car was in good shape, and it looked like he just walked off and vanished into nothing. How long had the car been there for? I believe they found it one month after he had been reported missing. So, or no, one month after he went missing, two weeks after he had been reported missing. Interesting. This is kind of an obscure disappearance. How did you hear about this? Because this was from 89, right? Yes. It's, it's actually just one of the stories that I remembered from being a kid and watching Unsolved Mysteries, and it always stuck with me. I think specifically, and I sort of discuss it in the episode, um, the reenactment segments scared me as a kid because the guy they had... Oh my God, had, I remember this, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the guy they had playing Tony was incredibly creepy, and to this day when I see footage of it, it creeps me out. So it just, it was like, he became like a boogeyman in my mind for years as a child, so it never really left me. Ridiculous. I wonder what that actor is doing right now. I wonder if that actor <laughs> has any inclination that what he did to you. I would love to find him because the, he was obviously very good at his job of playing a creepy person. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So this, uh, just doing some, you know, looking up some research on this, the, the homeless man who he invited to live with him, he introduced him to meditation and mysticism. Uh, is that correct? And do you think that there's a chance that Adam is, is out there? Because if he was disillusioned with his, with his life beforehand, he was only 23 years old. That seems like a pretty impressionable age to be influenced to just sort of, you know, ditch your car and take off. Right. Um, the 
the whole mysticism thing was really interesting. There's really not a lot of specifics given on that. Mysticism, I think, could cover a lot of different things. But I read a couple of things about doing stuff with candles and meditating with candles. And there was actually, um, before he disappeared, Adam went over to his mother's house for dinner and brought Tony with him. And his mother noticed that Adam had a really severe burn on his hand. And when she asked him where it had come from, he had said it was a test of endurance. And it's believed that he had held his hand over a candle flame for a prolonged period of time, somehow in connection with this mysticism and meditation stuff that he was getting involved in. Um, I do know that he took the meditation aspect of it very seriously. And I had found in one location that they had mentioned he liked to go off into the mountains to meditate. And I hadn't found that anywhere else. And I spoke to a woman who uh, runs a blog on missing people. And she had actually spoken with the family. And she sort of confirmed to me, yeah, he was very much into going out into wilderness and meditating on his own. So in terms of whether or not he's out there, that opens up a new door to me. And I think the family, to a degree, does not believe he is still out there. And they think rather than he blended into the streets and became a homeless person, they think there's a possibility he went out into the wilderness on his own and something went wrong or he chose to do something and just never came back. Was his car located near some sort of trailhead or something that would be on a hiking path? No, as far as I know, his car was located right in Beverly Hills. Oh, boy. And hmm. so what's the story with this guy, Tony? He was uh, apparently being kind of creepy to Adam's family. Well, the full story on that is so Tony just started showing up at family gatherings. Adam would just bring him with him. And at first, people didn't think too much of it other than he was clearly homeless. I know his mother at one point talked about, you know, she could smell that he hadn't showered in a while. So they found it weird. But at the same time, they were like, well, Adam's trying to find himself and maybe helping this guy is going to help him find himself. But when Adam went missing... The brother went over to his apartment and Tony was there, but he wouldn't open the door and he wouldn't let the brother in. So the mother decided she was going to go there. And this is where apparently she went inside. She forced her way in, was looking for her son. And supposedly she said, where's my son? And his response was, I'm your son. And then he tried to kiss her or make advances on her and she got out of there. And they actually had the police come and evict him. And from everything I can gather, the police are aware of where Tony is today. They do still keep tabs on him, but they don't believe he was involved in Adam's disappearance. Sorry, what was that last uh, line you said? <clears throat> they don't believe he's involved in Adam's disappearance. But they don't believe he was involved? The police do not believe Tony was involved in Adam's disappearance. Really? So they think he was just um, kind of a, a, an oddball friend hanging around Adam when when he at the same time he went missing? That sounds I would have to disagree with that. I don't have the all the information, but that sounds a little too weird to me. Well, from what I understand, they have specific aspects that they look at in regard to Tony. And at least one of them is that. Tony gained nothing from it. It wasn't like Adam disappeared and then Tony was able to get a bunch of money and access to Adam's stuff. He stayed in the apartment, but then eventually got evicted and wasn't in there very long. So if he did do something to Adam, I guess it's a question of why he would have done it. I know that Tony has some mental health issues, so that could be tied into it. But for whatever reason, uh, law enforcement has spoken to Tony on several occasions and even family members have run into Tony in the years since. 
And supposedly when they see Tony and they say, where's Adam? Sometimes he talks, sometimes he doesn't talk. Um, but what he's been known to say is something like, well, if you look around on the streets enough, you'll find him. Interesting. So wh- wh- where do you stand on this? Do you think that you could uh, be able to reach out to Tony somehow? I'm sorry, is he still around? Did I miss that? Tony is still around. Uh, I believe he's currently in a mental health facility. I wonder if he would be uh, willing to talk to you about this because that is really fascinating. Well, the trouble would be trying to find him. His real name is not Tony, and law enforcement won't reveal what his real name actually is. Do you think if you found the the actor from Unsolved Mysteries, that would sort of scratch that itch for you? Oh, there you (laughs) go. I mean, I'd be willing to interview him, but I'd probably be too scared to ask him too much stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, that's 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 really uh, something. Did he have a uh, polygraph uh, administered or anything like that? I'm not sure. I I can't remember off the top of my head if a polygraph was given. I do know he was interrogated and police felt he was being honest. That's interesting to me. My gosh, so many disappearances and there's so few answers on some of these. This just seems completely perplexing. Yeah, Tim. I want to just bring up this uh, fact that his wallet was found in his car, like all of his possessions were found in his car, and yet it, it's another one of those um, abandoned car, like looked like somebody just got up and walked away, driver's license, money, credit cards, all in the car. I mean, even if you're going off to uh, meditate in the woods, like wouldn't you take your, your identification? It just like another one of those uh, situations that someone just apparently had a mental break and and walked away. And Tim and I have these conversations about, you know, what's what's the protocol? What's the protocol if if a car has been sitting on the side of the road, you know, and no one's there? Is does that need to be some sort of official protocol or or do you just say, well, they they were drinking too much and they stumbled off and they'll come back when they sobered up? Like What's I mean, especially in Beverly Hills, like I'm sure a lot of people were walking by that car. It was piling up with uh, parking tickets. I don't know that you're ever going to really come up with a protocol or anything uniform for that kind of situation, because I've done a lot of cases where they find the car and it's like the person left everything behind on purpose. And sometimes that's connected to the disappearance. And sometimes it's not. Uh, At least in this case, there's a lot of people who believe Adam was possibly beginning to experience some mental health issues um, and that it may have been a situation sort of like the into the wild thing where he wanted to leave his old life behind and kind of go off on his own. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely that possibility, right? The the burn mark is interesting. I wonder if he was involved in any kind of cult or anything like that. (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) What is that? Is that a leap? (laughs) <laughs> I think that might be a bit of a, really? bit of a leap, but it's yeah. good, though. I mean, if he's talking to this guy, Tony, and we know that Tony was introducing him to what they're calling uh, mysticism. I mean, I don't know what level that that falls, you know, where, where on the spectrum that falls. Yeah, you're in Southern California. That's uh, the late 80s. You know, there's some there's that's kind of a hotbed for that kind of um, activity. I don't know. A lot, lot of mysticism uh, startups in uh, in that part of the country. 
the whole mysticism angle, I think if there was more information about it, maybe it would seem like something that wasn't such a key part of the case. But so little has been said about it that it seems like a bigger thing than it may be. I don't know enough about what supposedly was going on mystically there. I just know that there was the stuff involving the candle. And there was this uh, statement from Adam's mother that when he came over for dinner, he like waved his hand over his food and did some kind of weird blessing before he ate it. Unless they eventually find something. I don't think this is going to be a case where somebody comes up to the police and says, oh, I know what happened. I think I think the best possibility is that Adam went off on his own. Um, and I I don't think he's out there living as a homeless person somewhere. I don't know. I, I'm, I got to uh, I got to respectfully disagree with that. I think it's entirely possible that that what Tony is saying, you know, if you just look on the streets, you'll find him. He might not be right there in Beverly Hills, but he could have he could have walked away from his car and hopped on a train and gone up to Seattle or something. Um, the, the issue that I have with that is that you are then living under the premise that for 30 years he has never been picked up by police for anything. And did does he have access to his uh, money or bank accounts or anything like that? I guess we don't really know. No, he doesn't have access to any of that as far as we know, and none of that's ever had any activity on it. But I feel like if he was living as a homeless person, there's a chance in the past 30 years he would have been picked up for something at some point, whether it was loitering or vagrancy or whatever it may be, and he's in all the systems. So a quick fingerprinting of him would kick back that he's a missing person. Yeah. Hmm. And uh, since Tony is not the guy's real name, I feel comfortable in saying I think Tony knows more, and uh, I think he joined a cult, Lance. Well, I mean, if that's your takeaway on it, you say cult, I say Seattle homeless man. <laughs> no, probably not a cult, but I do think uh, Tony knows more. I, I don't know. You know, I, I lived in Southern California. There really are a lot of um, mysticism sort of cult-like uh, groups that form. It's just like they're, they're in the hundreds. It's like a state of mind out there. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying, you know, and they're all like slightly different, you know, but and I'm not saying that any of them have bad intentions at all. I just think... I don't know, maybe something happened. I, well, right, he's hurt. He got hurt by burning himself. So that was part of one uh, group that he was experimenting with at least. So there's some evidence he was hurt by one, by his involvement in one group. There's certainly a possibility there. I don't know that I'd go as far as the whole cult thing, because as far as we know, the only person he was doing any of this stuff with was Tony. As far as Tony knowing more about Adam, the problem with that is, Tony's got issues, so there's a question of what Tony even knows that is reality versus what he's having some kind of a breakdown with. And I just want to be uh, clear and say that uh, Meade saying that he was a homeless man in Seattle, I'm not trying to be uh, you know, disrespectful to Adam and his family and, and to just the missing person uh, epidemic anyway, you know, on a whole, but... Uh, just trying to uh, trying to add some light to the whole to the whole thing, so it's not totally depressing, and also maybe some optimism. Yeah, yeah, and I just want to apologize for everything I've said <laughs> here today. Ever, I think I think it's ultimately fine, you know. And there's a couple of cases out there where there's the possibility the person, you know is a homeless person and is still out there. I get emails um, probably once every two weeks with people sending me pictures of homeless people that they think look like uh, Bryce Laspisa who went missing from California. So I think there's certainly a possibility. Absolutely. And, and as Lance said, it is more optimistic and is sort of more romantic. And I would love to believe that's the way all these ended with, uh, with happy endings, but uh, it's just really hard to believe. 
I did say that, and thank you for uh, citing that I was your source on that, Tim. You're welcome. Well, uh, thank you very much for joining us here today, Stephen. We really appreciate it. Continue the great work on Trace Evidence. We will see you at the American Crime Festival, and we'll talk offline about getting a panel launched together. So a lot of exciting things coming up. All right, great. I look forward to seeing you guys there. It should be a fun event. And I can't wait to listen to your new episodes on Crime Junkie. Oh, thank you. Yes, I work very hard on those. Thank you.